Hello, and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Alex Forbes, stepping in for Isaac this week. Isaac's actually joining us, but from Philly, where he's uh, just spoken at his alma mater. Isaac, have you managed to grab a Philly cheesesteak yet? Uh, I'm actually uh, at a Flyers game right now, eating a cheesesteak, yelling about how New Jersey sucks. So it's the full Philly experience. Uh, I'm just taking a break to be on this podcast for a few minutes. Good to know. Also joining us this week, senior editor Tess Thackra. Hello, Alex. This week, the 2017 Whitney Biennial opens on Friday. It's the 78th edition of the Biennial, curated by Christopher Liu and Mia Locks. Um, And actually, though it's a biennial, has been gone for three years. It's the first edition to take place in the Whitney's new downtown location in the Meatpacking District um, and has been the focus of conversation throughout the art world this week. The three of us all went to the preview on Monday, and uh, while Tess wrote about it in a great review on Artsy, uh, we have kept ourselves purposely somewhat quarantined until we were recording this podcast uh, to fight out the finer points uh, of this biennial for you all. Tess, since you wrote our review, I was wondering if you could start us off, give us your first thoughts on the Whitney Biennial. Well, I really enjoyed it, which I think in itself is kind of um, notable. <laughs> um, some biennials feel like a bit of a slog to get through, Um And this, I mean, everyone is saying this is kind of almost a boring remark to make about it at this point, but it felt manageable in terms of its size. It's 63 participants, I believe, down from 103 or something like that from the last time. And in a much bigger building. And in a much bigger building. It felt like all the artworks had space to breathe. Um, The space itself is beautiful and they have a lot of flexibility, so um, we're able to really make a lot of connections between the works. Yeah, one one thing that I thought was interesting, which is that, you know, the mandate of the biennial is to take a snapshot of the contemporary. And I think, interestingly, the building itself, and I'm sure we'll talk about the way specific works used it, but the building itself felt like it was deployed in in service of that goal, you know, like I think the Whitney Biennial, I mean, the the Whitney's new meatpacking building, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with, this shiny, uh, glossy, this huge glass uh, building, basically, uh, sort of screams contemporary in and of itself. And I think that, you know, had the same works been presented, even in the Whitney's old building, uh, which is now the Met Breuer, it it, it would have really lacked something. Well, it would have been impossible, for one thing, but it also would have uh, uh, kind of lacked this part of the contemporary, which I think is is the kind of space that the Whitney is housed in yeah. uh, today. It screams contemporary museum. Yeah, and they also made really good use, I thought, of the surrounding space, the external space. So they used the balconies really well. They had a um, sort of monumental installation by GCC out on the terrace, um, which was a giant rendering of a melon that washed up on the Middle East with lots of nails in it. And it was some sort of vestige of a voodoo act or something like that. So seeing that set against New York's kind of ultra modern skyline was kind of amazing. And then also Samara Golden's installation in the Hudson side windows of the Whitney, really making use of the reflections from outside of the river um, It definitely felt like the building was sort of a participant in the exhibition. Yeah, I feel like, Isaac, to your point about kind of the snapshot of contemporary, I I 
can't remember seeing a biennial that had a better sense of both moment and place um, than this one. I, I kept walking around and thinking to myself, like, I this is about everything that I want in a Whitney biennial. It had, you know, the the big name artists that, um, or not even big name, but very kind of present artists on the kind of contemporary landscape, whether that's a, a great new piece by Annika Yee, or as Tess was saying, the Samara Golden piece, um, while also introducing a lot of new artists um, who I personally was less familiar with um, and having some historical weight to, it kind of just really ticked all the boxes in a way that was almost chillingly calculated. Yeah, like, it's funny that because as I was writing my review, I almost criticized it for being tidy. And that, mm. you know, it sort of <laughs> feels... In the end, I didn't do that because I just thought this is a really unfair criticism. You know, I've made I've criticized previous biennials for being imbalanced and kind of um, incoherent. So it feels like you can't really then also take a biennial to task for being um, cohesive and um, and balanced. Yeah, one, one thing that we actually talked about on the way back when we broke our, our rule for the podcast was that, you know, there, there's an extent to which I feel like it had a strong influence by the fact that nowadays it's not like you're going to go to a biennial and see a ton of artists that you've never heard of before. The internet has provided us with this mechanism by which we really like do kind of know who's up and coming long before we might have known about them 10, 15 years ago. Um, but it seemed like Chris and Mia really kind of took that and used it to the best of its ability to put together a show that was exceedingly relevant. Um, you know, room after room you walk through. Um, and I know like you wrote about this room in the piece, and I, I'd be curious you know, what everybody's feelings about it were, but the room that combined Henry Taylor's work with Dina Lawson's photographs just kind of took the temperature of, of just something I wouldn't necessarily have even expected to see in the biennial, yeah. but was exactly what I wanted to see in this biennial. Yeah, and they worked really well together, I should say. Henry Taylor makes sort of monumental scale paintings of ordinary black Americans and Dina Lawson um, photographs black Americans of, of the African diaspora. Um, and the two artists, actually, the wall text said something about their having had a creative dialogue across years. And I was, that's not something I'd heard before. So I actually looked it up and it seems they're close friends and collaborators, which makes a lot of sense seeing their work together because it really resonated. Um, but that sort of touches on probably the thing that I was most impressed by overall, which is that it felt that the tone and sort of pitch of the biennial overall felt really on point. Um, and I think what I mean by that is that the artists, or many of the artists, were sort of addressing our political and social climate earnestly, but not hitting you over the head with it foregrounding human individuals, ordinary Americans. It felt like you could really have an encounter with American people through the exhibition, mm. um, which seems to me to have a particular potency right now. Yeah, it really took the Henry Taylor work of Philando Castile's shooting that I feel like I had seen somewhere, but then to have that immediately in a biennial, you know, in, in short order after when it would have had to been made, because... Um, you know, the, the curators, I think, did make a point to say that a lot of this had all been figured out before the election. So I think we can't really make too much ties to necessarily the political situation we're in yeah. currently. Um, 
but even that kind of seeing that immediacy brought into it was really nice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I don't know if you guys have read, uh, you know, Jerry Saltz calls calls this biennial Hillary Clinton's biennial because it was formulated before the election, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of a strange mapping on to the exhibition that that sort of framework. I mean, I I really think in in like a very intelligent way, uh, these works sort of are very political, are very powerfully addressing contemporary politics, but. It, you know, it, it genuinely wouldn't have mattered if Hillary Clinton was president uh, when when this exhibition was going on. I still think they would have really packed a heavy political punch, uh, maybe even a heavier one, because a lot of these issues, I think, uh, have have been percolating, even though they are contemporary for, for many years, even into the Obama administration. So I think the, the curators did kind of an incredible job sort of speaking to our contemporary political moment. But understanding that that contemporary political moment would have existed in many ways independent of whoever was in the White House. Um, and that Henry Taylor work is a, is a great example, and which, which was just so powerful. And I also think um, uh, it's interesting because, it, to my mind, the biennial posed questions that weren't immediately resolved. Like I, I sort of walked out really pondering what painting uh, the shooting of Philando Castile sort of brought to that moment or, 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 or why, why it was so powerful. And, and I think that, you know, there was a ton of painting in the show and there was no question about its relevance as a medium today, even as VR and 3D in the form of Annika Yee's piece uh, was also present. You just mentioned VR and, and Tess mentioned being hit over the head, um, <laughs> which uh, brings us to what I, I feel like will probably be one of the more uh, both controversial and written about and um, room-splitting works of the show, Jordan Wolfson's Real Violence. Um, for the work, you're, you're asked to put on an Oculus headset and some headphones and hold on to a railing, and then you, you flip upside down as this um, Hebrew prayer starts being recited uh, to kind of land on a city street and then see uh, Wolfson himself come and violently beat um, another person with a baseball bat and then his feet. And um, the whole thing lasts about 90 seconds, but uh, it's been called you know, the most horrifying work of art uh, I, people have ever seen. That was Andrew Russith who said that on, on Twitter. Um, Tess, I know you had some thoughts about it in your review, and uh, I'm curious to see what you thought, Isaac. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting, I, you know, for for maybe reasons beyond what Wolfson himself intended. I think what you've seen for one thing with this piece is because it is a pure distillation uh, of violence into a completely uh, unintelligible scene beyond the actual act of violence. You don't know what's happening. You don't, you don't know why it's happening. You don't know the context. Um, it, it's allowed a lot of people to project their readings onto it. I mean, Jerry Saltz called it like uh, an expression of the Trump era or something. Uh, so I, I think that the, the work is interesting because it clearly speaks to a lot of people. Um, I thought it was compelling um, for reasons that relate to the medium of VR. Uh, I think, you know, there's, there's this really interesting narrative uh, that, that I've, that I've said uh, myself about, you know, you know, looking at violence in far off places in the world as, as sort of like the first uh, way we sort of morally engage with, with these sort of things. And in Wolfson's piece, 
uh, he does something interesting, which is that it doesn't really matter where you look. Like, you can stare at the violence, you can see it happening, but because it's totally devoid of context, you know, it's not something happening in Aleppo, you don't feel as though you've even performed some kind of uh, good thing. Like, you don't feel like you've done anything beyond sort of witness this horrendous act. Um, and I think it, it's an interesting comment on uh, on what it means to to witness violence. Um, and, and also sort of what it means to sort of stand by and, and just watch something happen that, that is so unintelligible and yet so powerful. I mean, it really is just the emotion that you walk away from, uh, with just this, this, this feeling of nausea and shock. Well, to your point of it's something that's very foreign to, uh, to a New York or LA city street. Um, but that is not at all a uh, abnormal experience many places around the world. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because in the next room you have Taylor's painting of Philando Castile um, being shot, which if you watch that video is is horrifying actually in a way that is is more disturbing, I think, um, than, than Wolfson's piece. Uh, and it's interesting to me, and I think it says a lot, that Wolfson's work is getting this uh, narrative of being incredibly disturbing, but but other works in the show that also deal with incredibly disturbing subject matter aren't. And and obviously part of that is because of the VR, which which is so immersive um, that it feels like there's no escape from from this incredible brutality that you're just witnessing. Yeah, I mean, I think that that medium has been, though, as I think you pointed out, like mostly used in this very almost theme parky way to take you on this experience and and I did really been kind of waiting for a work to take it and use it in an empathy inducing or um, really emotionally driven way but I know Tess had a very different feeling about it so I'm curious to get her perspective yeah I mean I really struggled to take anything away from this work at all it just felt so visceral and so lacking in any context um, that it was impossible for me to read it as anything other than a sort of sadistic act on the viewer. Um, I wasn't able to to place it in any kind of narrative or take away any lesson from it. I mean, I didn't, to your point, Isaac, I think to your point, um, you know, I, this didn't feel, I feel like I've seen violence before in movies, in real life, um, that this didn't feel like anything particularly new other than just another example of something really sick that I couldn't take any any sort of lesson from. There was something about it that was, to me, more like somewhere in between real life and Grand Theft Auto. I'm not sure, like, at different points. had I, I also knew what I was getting when I put the headset on. I'm not sure if, if either of you had no idea I what was coming. I didn't know. I had no clue. I wonder how that, how that ex- affects the experience. But there is that like video game part of it just by putting on the headset and having it be slightly... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting in and of itself for provoking a kind of debate around what it's trying to do. I mean, I generally agree with you, Tess, that sort of provoking raw emotion without any sort of overarching uh, goal or sort of message or meaning is oftentimes uh, both like lazy and um, just annoying and disturbing for no for no purpose. I, I think that this work is provoking in other ways than that though. Um, and, and I've sort of been 
stuck thinking about it, whether I want to or not, uh, in a way that I don't think many, many works of art uh, have, have really had that effect on me. I definitely found myself kind of it, it sitting in the pit of my stomach the rest of the time I was walking. I started on the sixth floor. So when I got down still onto the fifth floor, just sort of mulling this over and talking to some other people, I think pe- others had a, a similar reaction. I think as a curatorial move, that was interesting. Like at what point they inserted this gut-wrenching experience into the biennial if there was a if there was some intent there to make you look at you know you walk into Asadraza's treescape installation uh, in the next room over and it like what could have been a very sweet environment also then takes this very uh, different turn. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. Actually, now that I hear you say that, that it does sort of prime you in some way to, or sensitize you to what comes after it kind of puts an edge on things. You know, I, I think in some ways, um, I, you know, I can't read uh, Jordan Wolfson's mind, but I would say that a lot of whether or not that work is good or bad depends on actually how uh, y- y- critical and thoughtful uh, you are of it. You know, if you walk out of that, that exhibition thinking about it, but not about Philando Castile and not about the other works, uh, then I think it's it's failed as a as a piece, and and it requires a certain level of interrogation uh, to be successful, and I think that's what makes it difficult and also ultimately good. There was a good counterpoint I thought on that floor, which was the work of an artist known as Puppies Puppies, who I don't know at all. They had a piece up on the wall um, which sort of resembled a, a very carefully crafted metal hinge very smooth surface and so I leaned in to look at it and was sort of admiring the detail of it and then read the wall text and discovered that these are the dismantled triggers of guns Um, and I felt like really disturbed by this for some reason kind of leaning in and enjoying the sensual quality of this object and then discovering that it's this deadly object um I found to be equally as powerful but subtle. I mean, it's it's about something different, and I understand that the Wolfson is, I think, more about the spectatorship of violence. But they both carried that sort of searing quality of violence, but that had mm. more subtlety and impact to me. And I think that was something that I caught throughout the biennial itself. I mean, you wrote uh, really well about the Samara Golden piece. That's at first just this, you know, incredible double mirrored infinite scape of a uh, of a high rise that she's created in miniature along the windows and it's just super fun and and phenomenal to look at um and then as you noted Tess you you see people having uh homeless people sleeping along the, the sidewalk edge and you see um these kind of dentist rooms or or operating rooms having been you know, abandoned in what looks, I don't know, I, I thought of like a zombie film, personally. But um, these these moments throughout it where you get this kind of pure experience and wonder, but then that's also brought down in a very weighty and, um, you know, violent and aggressive manner. Um, and even with, you know, some of the placement of the works throughout, um, you have, you know, when you enter the fifth floor, the Occupy Museums piece that definitely speaks to a kind of overt political motivation. And next to that, you have these works by John Kessler, which are these 
kinetic sculptures with flat screen TVs, and they look very kind of jokey and fun, but they're actually about migration and climate change. Um, so I don't know. I felt that there was like just a perfect amount of tension throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and I and I also think that you know uh, the the works really were you know they packed a punch, but uh, generally also were quite subtle. And and the more time you spent with them, and I, and I'm going back this weekend, you know, not to spoil my white wine, but I'm I'm obviously going to have to go back. Um, you sort of definitely got more out of them. I mean, even on on every sensory level, there was that work. Someone will have to jump in with the, the name of the artist, but that was made of baloney. Uh, Pope L. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Alex didn't smell anything, but, you know, I walked towards that piece and I almost gagged because it just, it, you want to enter this like very aesthetically pleasing house structure uh, with these pieces of baloney that from afar, you can't really tell. They, they look sort of like uh, dots covering, covering this uh, building in sort of a very aesthetically sort of symmetrical pleasing way and then you I just got closer and I couldn't stomach the smell it was just too much it was um, really revolting I, I can't I, believe I you didn't smell, smell that Alex. I, I have I, a cold so I maybe that's <laughs> that's why it was but. stomach turning yeah and and also just thinking a little bit about that too post commodities of you know four wall video installation where you step into this room and it's these dizzying uh, out of sync videos uh, of uh, the border of border fences. Um, and so you feel incre- incredibly claustrophobic uh, in a space that's not really all that tight. And uh, that feeling definitely stuck with me long after I had exited that piece and exited the building. I mean, it's just, it, it, it helps you understand uh, our current climate, our political atmosphere and world, and the experiences of other people uh, in, a, in a really tangible way that's not easy to shake uh, or isn't, you know, simultaneously smart, but not over-intellectual. You know, zooming out a little bit, I, I when you say that, Isaac, it makes me think of, you know, Oquian Vezer's Venice Biennale two years ago, um, which was much more a kind of whack-a-mole, hit you over the head with political content. I, I loved it at the time. I thought it was phenomenal. Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about protest art and art as a means of kind of social change here over the last few months. And I, I'd be curious to get both of your perspectives on if this kind of more subtle or, you know, sweet and sour, whatever you want to call it, approach to art and politics or, or art and society. Do you think that that's a, a more effective or, or less effective we- means of communicating to an audience? I actually loved Oakley's exhibition as well I loved them both in different ways um, and I think Oakley's worked it was making an extremely strong statement you had absolutely no question about what he was trying to do with that exhibition um, I actually don't I didn't feel like it hit you over the head with it because there was still a lot of really nuanced moving pieces in it that felt very human to me um, this one overall felt more subtle um, but equally sort of affecting and potent. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, you know, idea that there is one uh, silver bullet way to uh, address politics, especially today, um, is a little limited. I think that, you know, a space like the Whitney is going to put on a certain kind of political exhibition, a space like the Brooklyn Museum, uh, or the or even the Queens Museum are going to do a different 
type of political engagement. And then those outside of institutional spaces are going to do their uh, own thing. And it's through that sort of multiplicity of approaches that I think ultimately the strongest kind of political engagement occurs. Because you never know what changes someone's mind. I don't really think. I think you just sort of throw everything at everyone and and hope uh, hope something works. I think also where you kind of get into difficult territory is if the curatorial conceit becomes pretentious or convoluted. And mm. in both these iterations, it just felt like you had a sense that the curators are clear-headed and they know what they're doing and they kind of um, are on the same page and are interested in work that's accessible, you know, um, and engaging and um, that really relates to the human experience in a way that a lot of people can, I think. Yeah, and I mean, read. I think we should we should give a shout out to the curators because uh, I talked to three, four, four artists for a preview piece that I wrote um, on the biennial, and they all just praised Chris and Mia uh, to to the heavens. As even even two artists, uh, Casey Golan and Victoria Sobel, who have made institutional critique. And, edu- and and access to arts and education um, part of their part of their practice you know two people who I wouldn't expect to be predisposed to uh, enjoy institutional uh, structures thought that that you know there was a real genuine engagement with the work and I think you you saw that even though we don't have the testimony of every artist you just saw that in how well the show came together you know you can't fake something like that it, it really needs to be real and and it's there Indeed. Well, congrats to Chris and Mia and to the Whitney Museum in general. I think a uh, resounding conclusion here is it's a great show and, and everybody should make a, tr- a point to go and see it if you're in New York or planning to be in New York uh, over its run. And if you're looking for something else to do, though, I think Isaac has said that he plans to do the same thing over and over again and seeing the Whitney Biennial <laughs> as many times as possible. Uh, it's now time for where in the art world will you be drinking white wine this week? That's harder to say than than you'd think, Isaac. Congrats on, <laughs> on pulling that off every week. You know, I, I make it look easy, but that's just because I'm a pro. Uh, Tess? I am going to an exhibition of Georgia O'Keeffe's wardrobe at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, it's a show about the way in which O'Keeffe very carefully styled herself in a kind of androgynous wardrobe and had herself shot by Stieglitz, the famous photographer, in these very austere compositions where she appears very serious and it's sort of about um, the persona that she was espousing. Great piece on that show, also on Artsy by Meredith Mendelssohn. Listeners should go check that out. Uh, Isaac, how about you? Uh, I spoiled it because I'm, you know, I've gone rogue now that I'm not the host, but I'm, I'm definitely going back to the Whitney Biennial and I'm going to spend a little bit more time with, with some of the pieces that I think, you know, I, I br- uh, brushed past. So there's definitely, and, and that's rare. I don't usually go back to exhibitions uh, more than once, but um, this one definitely earns it. And I am actually flying out tonight to Beijing via Hong Kong. Uh, going to go to Beijing Gallery Weekend. It's the first edition of uh, kind of a copy and paste from the very successful Berlin Gallery Weekend. Uh, excited to to see some of the shows up there and also some some shows at the private museums. Uh, and then heading down on Monday for Art Basel in Hong Kong, uh, which should be really interesting this year. I mean, the art world has been turning ever more towards Asia. And at least based on the, the previews I've been getting and um, it's just the kind of tenor of conversation leading up to this year's edition, uh, it definitely feels like the uh, the energy is moving 
eastwards. Um, so I'll look forward to, to talking to you, Isaac, probably on a podcast in a couple of weeks uh, about that one. Last time you went to, to China, I think you brought back some really disgusting salted beans. Are you going to do that again? <laughs> Christ, I don't okay, remember no. <laughs> that. <laughs> salted beans, no thanks. They were, they were they're said to be spice and they're said to be a delicacy. <laughs> okay. I, I wouldn't recommend them. Um, some emperor really enjoyed them, I believe. Uh, I will spare you the spiced beans, but uh, I will try to find something better also than the other green tea cakes that I picked up. Not not good on the duty-free sweets, uh, the Beijing airport. <laughs> I think the Hong Kong airport might have more in store. Uh, so something to look forward to on uh, Monday the 27th. <laughs> well, thank you, Tess and Isaac, for joining. Isaac especially calling in from Philly. I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of that Flyers game. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Isaac will be back uh, next week. But see you next time on the other side of the table. Production assistance was provided by our editorial associate, Abigail Kane, and theme music was by Broke for Free. 